1: If you are offended by potty talk, well then, you might be offended. It's Tuesday, October 11th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Angela Lansbury is dead at the age of 96. Let us now expect a crime spike, specifically murder spree, in the town of Cabot Cove, Maine. No doubt the residents of Cabot Cove feel unencumbered. Uninvestigated investigated by one Jessica Fletcher, who kept their murderous instincts at bay. Actually, they didn't. Jessica Fletcher investigated murders, didn't stop would-be murderers in Cabot Cove. This was the plot every week of Murder, She Wrote. And I have to say, I know that even though I never watched Murder, She Wrote. And I don't mean I didn't watch it regularly or I barely caught an episode, I honestly think I have never watched a minute of Murder, She Wrote. I don't know almost everything about it, but I know enough about it to make all the jokes, to get all the references, to know, in fact, that there was, for some reason, a video game of Murder, She Wrote, which could not afford the voice talents of Angela Lansbury. So you killed him with the boat hook from the Cornelia and spread some toothpicks around in hopes of redirecting suspicion at Billy Hammond. Unfortunately for you, you were the only logical killer. That not Angela Lansbury... Dead at 96. But what this got me to thinking about, and by the way, I know that Angela Lansbury was a Broadway actress and acclaimed actress in England. I know that she had a great role in one of my favorite movies, The Manchurian Candidate, where she played Frank Sinatra's mother, even though she's only 10 years older than Frank Sinatra. By the way, when they redid The Manchurian Candidate, Leave Schreiber was in the Frank Sinatra role and they cast Meryl Streep in the mother role. 17 years apart. That at least is uh, logical in terms of gestation and human procreation. But Murder, She Wrote was one of those institutions that even if you never watched Murder, She Wrote, you knew almost everything about Murder, She Wrote. And it wasn't just because it was a classic punchline, it was because it harkens back to the age of the monoculture. Essentially three networks and three comedians on late night shows all making the same jokes, but we at least were privy to what the culture was about, even if we weren't imbibing it. Same with Matlock. Never watched Matlock. No, the deal. Same with Spencer for Hire. Same with MacGyver. Even if McGruber didn't spoof MacGyver, I, having never watched MacGyver, would know that MacGyver made things out of chalk and plastic and gum and somehow was able to. What? MacGyver is way out of situations. Now, I, walking around in 2022, think that, We're living in the exception, we're living in a time unlike all others, but the age of the monoculture might actually be seen as the exception. For years, civilizations existed ununited by any form of broadcast or other media that linked us all together instantaneously, so there were fractured cultures. And now we've gone back to the age of fracturing, yet in a different kind of way. For instance, things or news items that I'm very interested in, not just media that I'm somewhat aware of, but things that I even seek out, I can't always get the answer to. Like the missile strike on Kiev. I said to myself, wait, Putin had all these missiles? He could have struck Kiev at any point. And in order to get an answer to that, I did a lot of digging, more digging than I think I needed to. Apparently the answer is, yeah, he does have some dumb munitions, but he's winding those stockpiles down. So... The assault on Kiev shouldn't really be any indication that he could just bomb civilian targets at will. It's more of an indication that he could bomb these civilian targets, but it won't last that long. Anyway, back to Angela Lansbury and the monoculture, she did come from a time and a place where there was one culture uniting us. And even if we weren't experiencing it, somehow we knew about it these days something something try guys and then saturday night live does a sketch about the try guys but the sketch i think hits home because no one really knows who the hell the try guys are and try guys is a pretty stupid name whereas angela lansbury even if you only knew her from murder she wrote you find out that she was mrs potts in beauty and the beast cheer up child it'll turn out all right in the end you'll see Oh, listen to me, jabbering on while there's a supper to get on the table. And she was in Gaslight, and she was in a favorite of mine, Bed and Broomstick. She was on Broadway as Mame. What a career. I'm glad we all got to experience it. Or, in my case, vis a vis murder, she wrote, experience it through others making jokes about it. On the show today, I shall bring you into the council chambers of the Los Angeles City Council where calls for resignation were made full-throatedly, as we shall play for you. But first, orphan drugs are so named because they mostly started out as part of larger trials for which drug companies believed there would be a greater application. And then, when it was determined that only a few thousand, or in some cases many thousand people, could benefit from these drugs, The plug was pulled. So legislation has been introduced, and it's been on the books for 40 years, mandating that orphan drugs, which often have a genetic component, continue on because they could save lives, even if they won't make major pharmaceutical companies the most money possible. A person in the field of orphan drugs and genetic medicine is Jim Garrity, He's been the director of eight NASDAQ-listed biotech companies and the chair of five, and he has written a book about his time in the field inside the orphan drug revolution, The Promise of Patient-Centered Biotechnology, Jim Garrity, up next. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Miracles don't come cheap. I'm especially thinking about the cost of drugs, which we sometimes call miracle drugs. And when they cure polio or when they cure or treat COVID, they are seen as miracles. But that's because millions and millions of people had or were affected by those diseases. What if the number of People who are affected by a disease or ailment was in the thousands. We could still invent drugs and do invent drugs to treat them, but the incentives become misaligned. Enter the category of orphan drugs. There are laws about them in the United States, but laws are not always enough to save the lives that could otherwise be saved if we allow technology and medicine to work its magic. Writing about this is a CEO, and executive from the biotech industry who's been working with orphan drugs his entire career. The name of the book is Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution, the Promise of Patient-Centered Biotechnology. James A. Garrity joins us. Hello, Jim. Welcome to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Let's start with
0: definitions. Orphan drugs, what are they? How'd they get their name? That's a good place to start. So orphan drugs, in a simple sense, are drugs that treat orphan diseases. So the question is, what are orphan diseases? And orphan diseases, in common language, are rare diseases. They're diseases that afflict a relatively small number of people. They're actually defined, as you mentioned, by a law called the Orphan Drug Act, which was passed in the United States just about exactly 40 years ago now. And the Orphan Drug Act, which was designed to address genetic diseases primarily that had been orphaned in the sense that they were abandoned by the pharmaceutical industry because the industry thought that there were too few patients to make a profit by developing drugs for those diseases. And that law set a ceiling of up to 200,000 people in the United States as the definition of an orphan drug in the United States.
1: Yeah, well also at that time, you know, prior to the, like I have to tell you, but. Prior to maybe the 80s, drug companies were essentially chemical companies, right? Chemistry is how they solved our problems via drugs. And then as we started learning about genetics and mapping the genome, they became something else. Tell me how that plays into the... Uh, the eventuality that we were able to come up with cures for so many diseases, but many of those diseases actually have quite few, far fewer than 200,000 patients.
0: You're exactly right. And, And the book talks about three sparks that lit the orphan drug revolution. And the first one was the orphan drug act and the recognition and the incentives that that brought. But the two others that were in some ways even more fundamental and more deeply underlying were, as you said, the revolution in in, in biology, the understanding of you know genetics, DNA, starting with Watson and Crick and the double helix in 1953. And the third spark was the understanding of genetic diseases and the recognition of how many diseases were genetic in origin, and the understanding by great scientists at the NIH and elsewhere of the genetic defect underlying those diseases, which then opened up a path for what would be necessary to treat them. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important for your listeners to understand this. You know, people might say, well, if these diseases are rare, you know, why do I need to worry about them? Why is it important? But the fact is that today, 7,000 individual rare genetic diseases, what are sometimes called monogenic or single gene diseases, have been identified. And individually, each one is rare. But collectively, they're estimated to afflict 30 million Americans. And what's important for people to understand is they can strike at any birth. You know, sometimes people think, oh, well, they run in families, and, you know, we don't have that in my family, so I don't need to worry about it. But the fact is, any child, any grandchild, any niece or nephew, whether there's a history of genetic diseases or not, these genetic diseases, tragically, can strike. They can strike often at birth or in early childhood. And, they, and if there are not therapies available, they can lead to early death or they can lead to a lifetime of severe disability and tragic consequences that people really should understand.
1: So I want to take a couple diseases, one that I knew about, one that I didn't, that illustrates some of these issues. Hemophilia doesn't seem that rare. How does it play a role in what you're talking about, orphan drugs and rare genetic diseases?
0: Yeah, hemophilia is a rare genetic disease. It falls within those criteria, but it's... it's um, it's well-known. The reason why hemophilia is so well-known, you know, hemophilia has often been called the royal disease. And as you probably know from this, many people know the story of, you know, it ran in royal families from Queen Victoria in England down through uh, the Russian royal families, our Nicholas II, and they played a role in the demise of the, of the Russian monarchy. Well, hemophilia, it was actually how I got introduced into the orphan drug revolution, which, as I say, I stumbled into also about 40 years ago, when I started working with a client uh, who, was, who was then making products for hemophilia, which are so-called factors, blood factors, and in those years, they were sourced from pooled plasma. When people would donate blood or plasma, that would all be collected and fractionated, and, and, and these factors would be extracted from it. And they showed tremendous, they had tremendous value, and they, for, for the hemophilia acts, they represented a, a life-changing uh, innovation. But then, uh, you know, right around the early 1980s, of course, the HIV virus was, uh, you know, arose and was discovered. And as a result, the hemophilia community was devastated by uh, HIV and AIDS. And that led to a whole set of generations of work on how do we both initially purify the blood supply, but beyond that, how do we get beyond sourcing products from blood? And the next generation of hemophilia therapies were indeed recombinant products or genetically engineered products, much safer and restored hemophiliacs and people with hemophilia to the quality of life and beyond that they'd had before the HIV epidemic struck. Now, did that play out
1: Were it was it market forces uh, without government intervention or laws playing out that allowed those uh, the new form of hemophilia drugs to take hold?
0: Well, there was great. There were great advances in science and medicine, and some of the early biotechnology companies. Hemophilia was a very important uh, focus for them. But you know what, what? powered the Orphan Drug Act was was patients and patient activism. And as you'll remember, you know, around the time when the HIV crisis erupted, groups like ACT UP uh, brought a whole new level of patient activism. They brought visibility. They brought pressure on the FDA, on the industry, to take action, to develop drugs, to make drugs available. And that level of patient activism had a huge impact on therapies for AIDS, a huge impact on therapies for hemophilia, and has spilled over into a level of activism in orphan drugs in general that has led to many additional drugs being developed for many other diseases.
1: I want to get to Gaucher, which is the uh, the other disease that illustrates some of our points. But you're... A CEO of a profit-seeking corporation. I'm not saying this is a hypothetical. That's what you were, or uh, now you're still an executive. Why? What's the case that we need government? intervention to what to force companies to take a loss on some of these drugs is that the dynamic that is what the orphan drug act and other forms of uh, government intervention essentially does we can save people so we have to we don't care if your for-profit business takes a you know a
0: little bit of red on this one that's what some of the advocates of the orphan drug reform had actually advocated for but as you can imagine that you know, the, the industry, you could say opposition to that was so strong, but, but beyond opposition, the let's say the counterproductive nature, the fact that industry was bound to be opposed to that, was made that kind of a doomed strategy. Sure. And what ultimately emerged with the consensus of, you know, political activists and also industry support were incentives. And so what are the incentives? The incentives are, in some ways, uh, reduced filing fees because these diseases are so small so that people, it reduces the burden to get started because it's not as expensive, It provides consultation with the FDA, which is very important in these very customized diseases to understand and work together on how a therapy can be developed and approved. And most importantly, to your point about kind of avoiding losses, It provided a period of what's called market exclusivity, which said that if a company got a drug approved for one of these orphan diseases, it would have a period of years to recoup its investment before the product was allowed to go generic or before competition was allowed. And it was really that incentive that allowed companies and investors to see that if they took on these high-risk investments, at least they had a prospect of getting a return from them.
1: So within the pharmaceutical industry, within your industry, what is – I'm sure different companies have different uh, orientations, but what is the attitude toward the Orphan Drug Act? Is it like – oh, I'm going to say in the building industry, is it like their attitude toward the American with Disabilities Act, something like – Look, of course, we all feel terrible for people with disabilities and want to do what we can. But, you know, it is a it is a regulation we have to put up with. I mean, some some people within the building industry think that others are, you know, more uh, along the lines of advocates. But give me what you think the common bottom line in the pharmaceutical industry towards uh, the attitude is about orphan drugs and regulations thereof.
0: In the early years of the orphan drug revolution, it was exactly what you described. There was a lot of resistance. The industry felt that uh, they were going to be forced to do things they didn't want to do, and it was going to be a waste of money. And that was the pharmaceutical industry. But what came along at the same time, starting in the you know in the, in the early 1980s, was the rise of the biotechnology industry. And uh, to your point earlier, traditional pharmaceutical companies, you know, they were based on chemistry and on synthesizing chemicals. The biotechnology industry grew out of this revolution around genetic engineering and these biological compounds. And it was really the success of the early biotechnology companies, and I, and I would say. You know, you mentioned that I worked at Genzyme. I worked there for over 20 years. But I think a lot of people would say that it was Genzyme's success in developing and commercializing the first real orphan drug for Gaucher disease, proving that it could work, and proving even more importantly that you could bring it to patients around the world, that you could secure access for patients for these expensive drugs, and that you could build a company on it. And that, that was 20 years ago, and that has transformed the industry today, and many pharmaceutical companies and many biotechnology companies today embrace these genetic diseases, these orphan diseases, as a very important part of their mission, and in fact, a very important part of how they see the future of what they're trying to do. So tell
1: me about Gaucher and your company's involvement with it.
0: Sure. So Gaucher, you, you use the term miracles, Mike, and I, I use the term miracles sometimes in the book, and Gaucher is a great example of one. Uh, you know, discovered by a French physician in the, uh, in the 1800s and very little understood. And then in the 1960s and 70s, a pioneering physician at the NIH named Roscoe Brady uh, spent 30-plus years researching the disease, understanding it, understanding the defect, and he found that there was one genetic defect and there was one enzyme, an enzyme with a long name, glucocerebrosidase, that was defective in these patients. And he believed that if you restored that enzyme, a properly functioning enzyme to those patients, the disease would be cured. And so he tried, and I'll give you an example of a trial, another miracle. He, he conducted a trial with seven patients, and in those seven patients, it didn't work. The drug didn't work in six of them. It only worked in one. And the only one it worked in was a child. The six others were adults. It worked in one three-year-old boy, and one of the symptoms of Gaucher disease is a grossly distended belly because the spleen s- swells up to several times its normal size. It looks like a basketball in your stomach. And uh, you could see with this child, this boy, Brian Berman, who's described in the book, whose mother got him enrolled in the trial over you know over all the existing policies of the time. Um, and you could see whenever he got the therapy, the drug, the enzyme, his stomach would recede and he'd get up and be able to walk around. But to secure this enzyme, it's a trace enzyme that was only available in very minute quantities in human placentas. And so they had to gather thousands of placentas to extract from a wine press this one enzyme and they couldn't get enough of it. And so they'd run out of enzyme and you could see that the boy would regress. His stomach would distend again, he'd have to be bedridden, they'd get more of the enzyme and you could see it was working. And it was based on that one case that Genzyme, Henry Tamir, the CEO of Genzyme and really the pioneer of the orphan drug industry, believed that this drug would work. And based on that, he went out and raised the money for Genzyme to collect enough placentas and treat enough patients to prove that it worked. It did. And based on that, Genzyme developed the next generation of recombinant product that is now the standard of care around the world. And the success of that product, the miraculous, unexpected success of that product, transformed the thinking in the biotech community and and really made this, you know, made this the leading edge of the orphan drug revolution. Why do you need government regulation? If you told a success
1: story where the company made a lot of money and and persevered, but shouldn't that alone be the argument to pursue this rather than government regulation?
0: Yeah, it's not so much government regulation, it's incentives. And Genzyme's was importantly supported by those incentives, by that market exclusivity in particular. And that's what allowed Genzyme to earn a return on the investment that had gone into developing that drug. And it was seeing that return that has allowed investors and encouraged investors to invest in developing similar therapies. So I wouldn't call it regulation. I mean, the FDA, of course, you know, regulates drugs in a different sense, but in terms of orphan drugs, I would say what we have and what we need are not regulations, but we have incentives that have worked very well, and what we, what we need is to ensure that those are not taken away in a way that would prevent further innovation from being supported. Is that a threat? It is a threat, and today, as we speak, Mike, the, there's been an explosion in orphan drugs over the 40 years since the Orphan Drug Act was passed, but as we're speaking, there's a real chill on the sector, and investment is down at near all-time lows, and companies are, are terminating programs, are laying people off, are shutting up operations. And one of the main, two of the main reasons are that uh, number one is the threat of uh, drug price controls. And whenever you know Congress starts talking about controlling drug prices or capping drug prices, investors pull money out of investing in biotech. Even though what really matters to patients is not what the list price of the drug is, but what their insurance policies provide in terms of copays and out of pockets, because all these drugs are covered by insurance. And the second chill on the sector right now on investment is that, you know, the FDA has continued to impose regulatory standards that are more appropriate to diseases with millions of people than diseases with, in some of these cases, only a few hundred patients. Some of these 7,000 diseases are what are sometimes called ultra-orphan, have Mm -hmm. only a few hundred patients. And if you try to impose the same standards, particularly around things like manufacturing, and it's it's not lowering quality. It's adapting the standards so that you don't have the same standards for, you know, multiple lot releases and release specifications and process validation. Some of that can be done post-approval, and if it can be done post-approval, then we could get these drugs to patients much faster. So it's really the two threats, I would say, of price controls and of, let's call it, excessive or inappropriate regulation that are are putting a real pall on investment in these drugs today. So
1: I bet you know... Guys like Kenneth Frazier and Albert Borla and Bob Davis, and the CEOs. These are a C- couple CEOs of Merck and one of Pfizer. And I would imagine, you know, many of them have uh, backgrounds uh, in medicine and developing drugs, and they're not uncaring people, but they can't possibly have the connection between their drugs and the people and families they cure. Uh, as you do. Uh, When you're talking about Gaucher, there's one kid who launched that entire uh, initiative to save many lives. So you have a personal connection to patients. You have a personal connection to families. Families want these drugs, want these miracle drugs, want these cures for their loved ones. And when they get them, there, there's no question they're eager to take them. In most, in many cases, they've been advocating for the miracle cure for years. But what we just saw with the COVID pandemic is, I'm going to call it a miracle cure, but so many people just rejecting it, not just taking it for granted, but being suspicious of it. And my question is, does that surprise you? Does that dishearten you? It disheartens me. But did that show you something that you hadn't expected, um, knowing where you come from and what what you've given your life to.
0: It was disheartening and is disheartening for the people involved and for the other people that they put at risk, of course. And, uh, you know, it goes to some deep issues in our society that are probably a little bit beyond the scope of this discussion in terms of how we try to overcome some of those fears and some of that ignorance and some of that opposition. But I will say, uh, you know, as you kind of suggested, you don't see that in the rare disease community. Uh, these people because they, these are their loved ones their children often that they're that they're caring for and they are they are first of all they put their lives into understanding these diseases into understanding therapies that can be effective and marshaling you know researchers and supporting trials and they are eager to get these drugs and I, I don't think Mike I can tell you of a single example in my you know 40 years in this field where a drug was successfully developed for one of these, debilitating genetic diseases where patients and family members were not eager to take it
1: inside the orphan drug revolution the promise of patient-centered biotechnology is the book and james garrity has been my guest thank you so much jim
0: thank you mike it's been a pleasure
1: And now the spiel. The chamber of the Los Angeles City Council was in meltdown this morning at issue comments that the council president and two members had made on tape disparaging the indigenous population, a black boy who is the adopted son of one of their fellow council members, and that council member who is gay as a little bitch. The recordings made last year surfaced after an unknown leaker posted them publicly a few weeks ago. And then they got wider play in the Los Angeles Times. They were ugly. Here is Nuri Martinez, who today announced she was taking a leave as president of the council. That, by the way, was interpreted as resigning. I'm not sure that that's what it means. But in any case, here is what she said about the black son of the white council member, Mike Bonin. Whatever the
0: kid's name is, I'm like, it's like the oddest thing. It's like black and brown on this float. And then there's this, this white guy with this little black kid. Who's misbehaved? Este niño has no. He's. They're not wow, doing that. Yeah, no. They're not doing. The kid's bouncing off the effing walls on the floor, practically <coughs> tipping it over. There's nothing you can do to control him. Changuito, and I'm just like, oh my God.
1: That phrase you heard at the end is Spanish for like a monkey. Martinez laughingly said the child needs a beatdown. Elsewhere on the recording, council member Kevin DeLeon told his fellow officials that the power of the black community is exaggerated, likening it to a famous film.
0: Yeah, but can I say something right now? And this is what I call the, the, um, this guy is the movie, uh, the, the Wizard of Oz effect. Yeah. And what I mean by the Wizard of Oz effect is oh. when you're at the side of the curtain, it's like this big voice. Yeah. And yeah it sounds yeah. big. Yeah, and it sounds yeah. like there's thousands of something. Like and then when you actually like, pull the curtain, is that like you see the little wizard of like, You know
1: what? I've never watched the movie.
0: It's the same thing.
1: Nuri Martinez has never seen the Wizard of Oz, that is shocking, yet not necessarily offensive, even for an official in Hollywood. But her comments describing a child who was six in 2017 when his actions were being described, they were unforgivable, as were these remarks about progressive prosecutor George Gascon, quote, fuck that guy, he's with the blacks. Today at the city council, many members of the public identified themselves as with the blacks. I'm with the blacks, they would say as they came up to the microphone and voiced their displeasure. They and other members of the public expressed outrage in a sprawling, angry, chaotic, and maybe cathartic procession. But before public comment time, Mike Bonin, whose son was derided on those tapes, spoke. And I take a lot of hits, and and hell, I know I practically invite a bunch of them. But my son... Man, that makes my soul bleed and it makes my temper burn. And I know I'm not alone because Los Angeles has spoken and it feels the same way. And then Mitch O'Farrell chairing the meeting assured everyone they would have their chance to speak.
0: I implore all of you, let let us proceed with this meeting so that everyone here can be heard. Everyone took time off so they could be heard
1: today. Which led to the airing of the Vox Populi. First of all, fuck you. Fuck De Leon. Fuck Nori and fuck Cedillo. Fuck this whole meeting right here because it's illegitimate. The people are shutting this shit down afterwards. Nori Martinez,
0: Gil Cedillo, and Kevin De Leon, they need to go. They need to go now. I'm ready to escort them out of this city uh, hall, out of
1: this city council chambers.
0: Public hearings have not been heard. Item 19, Kevin DeLeon's a piece of shit. Fuck item 19. (laughs) Item number 20, relative to offer of a reward for information leading to the identification, apprehension, and conviction. Snitches get stitches. Shut your ass up and let me finish, fool. Our children, your child, nobody's child in this chamber is a monkey. Nobody. That language, unacceptable. The anti-blackness, unacceptable. The anti-immigrant language, unacceptable.
1: Everyone, it really seems like everyone, had their turn. Griff, the pastors, the laborers, union members, residents of District 10, a Latina woman who said in Spanish she doesn't have power and eloquence, but unlike the powerful, she has respect. They were all heard. And by day's end, no official resignations, just that one statement from Nuri Martinez about a leave of absence. There was also a mayor's race looming, in which white billionaire Rick Caruso is pitted against Karen Bass. Cedillo endorsed Caruso. Martinez and DeLeon endorsed Bass. Both Mayoral candidates have called for all involved to resign. Caruso adding, most of the people involved in this ugly episode have endorsed Karen Bass. That's true, two out of the three. Way to rise above, Rick. Underlying the harsh comments was the harsh reality of politics being a zero-sum game, often fought along racial lines. The city of Los Angeles is almost 50% Latino. The city council's 15 members include four Hispanics, and three are right in the middle of this scandal. Cedillo was leaving anyway, he has been defeated by Eunice Hernandez in the June primary, but all three were speaking crudely about redistricting efforts in order to keep and entrench power along, as per their discussion, ethnic lines. It may not be how we want politics or America to work, but that's the way it seems to work by those who control the levers of power. But let us instead end on a more hopeful, inspirational note. This from a member of the public, Abby Robles, speaking here through a translator. What Nuri Martinez said was ignorant because if she cuts her veins and I cut my veins, we still have the same blood running through. And she's just ignorant and her education, she could rub it in her butt. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. And Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And thanks for listening. Most of this shit is bullshit.